You are listening to the Birth Bruja podcast, radical, transformative, empowering birth work in all its nuances. Reproductive justice, racial justice, reclaiming ancestral wisdom, decolonizing the birth space. Here, my friends, we go deep. Join us each month as we chat with activists, scholars, healers, community wellness workers, birthing folk, and beyond to explore topics from their roots to their leaves. You're listening to episode 16, part one of the Supporting Survivors Who Birth series, a dive into the intersections of sexual violence and birth work and what we can do to best be of support for survivors. In this episode, we speak with social justice advocate, somatic coach, and rape crisis counselor, Tabitha Thomas, for an in-depth exploration into the prevalence of sexual violence common barriers survivors may face in reporting and seeking support, what healing from sexual violence can look like, and what we can do to best be of support when someone discloses their survivorship. This series is near and dear to my heart, as I've been a rape crisis peer counselor with San Francisco Women Against Rape for over a decade, and as a birth worker, specialize in supporting survivors through the birth experience. I'm launching this series in celebration of my upcoming training through Cornerstone Doula Trainings called Supporting Survivors Who Birth. It's a four-hour online intensive with an anti-oppression-based exploration into the intersections of sexual violence and birth work. In this training, you will deepen your understanding of the workings and impact of sexual violence, unveil the ways in which trauma can manifest for survivors through birth, pregnancy, and postpartum, embody these practices through role-playing to feel what it can be like to provide support in the moment, identify and strengthen your abilities to best be of support. The first two parts of this podcast series are a sneak peek into the training. Go to birthbruja.com to see a detailed description of what the course will cover. One final note before we begin. As with any topics related to trauma, please take gentle care of yourself. Press pause to take breaks, call to debrief with a friend, or spend some time moving your body to help process and integrate what you've heard. Tabitha, welcome, welcome, welcome. Please start off by introducing yourself and letting us know where your people are from and what you're doing these days. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Tabitha Thomas, and my people are from Humboldt County by way of Taiwan, Oklahoma, and Washington State. My mother immigrated here in 1969 to be with my father, whom she met um, in Taiwan when he was stationed there during the Vietnam War. Uh, my family on my mother's side is from Puli, which is a central town in the mountainous region. And our family is native Taiwanese um, from the valley in a region called uh, Pazet. And my father's family is of European descent, but I'm not really sure when they immigrated. Um, I moved to San Francisco uh, in 2000 and have been in Sacramento now for four years. I am a survivor of child sexual abuse 
and I've been doing anti-violence work since 2007. I started out at uh, SF4, where we met, San Francisco Women Against Rape, and I'm currently working there uh, part-time as their counseling consultant, and previously I, I was on staff there before relocating to Sacramento. Um, in Sacramento, I worked for Weave, which is the Rape Crisis Center here, domestic violence agency as well. Um, and then in 2018, last year, I launched my own practice, Creative Coaching, um, in order to support ad- uh, advocates and activists in their own healing. And I certainly bring in my counseling background and also incorporate uh, somatics. Thank you. You're yes, welcome. as you shared with folks, uh, you and I have known each other for a while. Mm-hmm. And as a fangirl and colleague of yours, I just want to say I am so proud of all that you've been contributing to this world. And I'm especially proud of the way that you've stepped into um, since 2018. I can't believe it's even been that long. Um, (laughs) I'm really proud of you for stepping up into the intersections of supporting activists around healing and finding sustainable shapes to do this work while still engaging in our own healing. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And without further ado, Tabitha, Mm -hmm. let's just go ahead and jump into it. This opening question Mm -hmm. is around um, the actual word sexual assault. It's something that we see commonly in a very detached way. You know, maybe something in like a legal document or maybe something on like, you know, when it comes to policy, um, Mm -hmm. policy work. But when you speak about sexual assault in relation to a conversation today, how are you defining it? Yeah, I'm just hearing you speak to that um, made me think of really I'm looking at it as the human experience of sexual assault. So when I'm speaking about sexual assault, I'm talking about sexual violence which includes sexual harassment, sexual coercion, whether it be physical, verbal, or otherwise non-consensual touching um, and or non-consensual penetration. Mm. Thank you for saying the term Mm -hmm. non-consensual because actually that's something that, that the topic of consent is so crucial to this piece, you know, to this approach to ending sexual violence. And forgive me as I just kind of run away with this real quick. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's really important. And it's something that I think is not present in mainstream conversations around sexual violence work. So consent is something that means to actively give permission. If there is not an active confirmation of yes, then consent has not been given. It is important for folks to understand that the absence of no does not mean yes. Silence does not equal consent. So a verbal yes, nodding of the head, a thumbs up, right? My favorite sexy move in the bedroom, Um, (laughs) pulling someone closer, et cetera. Mm -hmm. These are all examples of saying yes and actively giving consent. The responsibility lies on us to actively seek someone else's consent before sexually engaging with them. I'm going to say that one more time for the people in the back. The responsibility lies on us to actively seek someone else's consent before sexually engaging with them. Yes. Okay. So let me slowly step back from my soapbox. (laughs) (laughs) Continuing on this this stream of questions, uh, Tabitha, Mm -hmm. who does sexual assaults impact? 
um, sexual assault impacts everyone. Uh, we, we know that marginalized communities are disproportionately impacted by acts of violence. And ultimately, rape is a tool of oppression. Mm, can you speak more to this? Yeah. So um, when I talk about marginalized communities, whether it's, you know, race, um, gender identity, uh, socioeconomic status, etc. Um, we're looking at those identities and also intersections of those identities mm-hmm. and how uh, we often see, you know, the, the intersections are where we find higher rates of, of people experiencing violence um, and also compounded by their, their having less access to resources in the mm-hmm. aftermath. Okay. So so then what you're saying is someone who is a disabled queer mm-hmm, woman mm-hmm. of color who's formerly incarcerated right. would statistically experience more rates of violence with lesser access to the resources in the aftermath? Yes, exactly. Okay. That right there is huge. And is. Um, mm-hmm. and especially for those of us who have done um, anti-violence work within the nonprofit industrial complex. Right. Um, it is so crucial for us to keep this in mind when we are crafting our programs and our services, right? To make it right. accessible for those that need it most, not mm-hmm. those that can most conveniently access it. Right, right. Or those who can more conveniently make money for the agency. Ah, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you. Yes. Oh, man, I knew we should have carved more time for this conversation. But because we have so much to talk about, I'm tentatively, hesitantly moving forward. Um, uh, All right. So thank you for, for sharing about who sexual assault impacts. I specifically wanted to ask that question. Because Mm -hmm. especially as uh, a Latina woman who grew up in a Catholic context, there's this connotation that bad girls get raped, Mm. that bloody girls, Mm. girls who drink and do things that their moms told them not to, that those are the folks that get raped. Um, And so therefore, I just think it's important for everyone to know that you don't have to be a woman to be raped. You don't have to be promiscuous or even enjoy sex like it impacts everyone of every gender of every class right mm-hmm. um and that being said as you mentioned that the marginalized communities experience it most so let's shift the perspective to the perpetrator mm-hmm. who are who are the perpetrators of sexual assault uh, perpetrators can be really anyone of any gender or sexual orientation um most commonly, they are folks that we already know and trust. Mm. Often, they have some sort of position of authority or power over us, such as you know a parent or a teacher, a coach, an officer, um, or they might hold economic, social, or and or political power. Mm. Um, yeah. So perpetrators aren't just you know the myth of the stranger in the dark. Um, And while that does happen, uh, more often perpetrators are someone that we know and someone who is abusing their power over another. Thank you for stating that example about how perpetrators are not men wearing black in the bushes waiting for us to run by. You know, ultimately, that stranger in the dark myth, it helps to perpetuate this belief that that's what rape is and anything else that you may be experiencing 
is not valid, which is not yes. true. Yes. And it also perpetuates this myth that rape is what happens when mm-hmm. you're actively screaming and fighting and right. as if you're believing that you can run away and be fine. Yeah. Think about what you just said about how most perpetrators have power over us, mm-hmm. you know, like physical power, socioeconomic power, et cetera, mm-hmm. that significantly lessens the feeling of safety. So even right. if we physically could run away, right. what would that mean if we would then be reported to the authorities and deported? Mm-hmm. Or what would that mm-hmm. mean if if then the perpetrator might take back you know finances so that we can no longer take care of our family? So we're going to talk a little bit more in the future about mm-hmm. some of the the interplays of power over and how that can impact someone's desire to fight back yeah. in a physical way and or speak out about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, thank you for that. Moving forward, we can't talk about perpetrators without talking about the creation of perpetrators, mm-hmm. which is rape culture, right? Perpetrators are generally speaking, it's not just like a one-time thing. There are multiple acts of power over someone else that happen. Maybe it starts right. off by the snapping of a bra, mm-hmm. the feeling that they are it's okay to touch someone else's body. And then it escalates into thinking that, you know, actually, you know, they really want to be kissed, but they just don't know it yet. Right. You know, and then it escalates into it not even phasing them that someone is verbally or physically saying no, because their bottom line is that they feel entitled to another Uh person's body, to another person's, you know, sexuality. All of this, this premise, this entitlement is seated in rape culture. So please speak to us about what is rape culture and yeah. why is this important to understand when we're trying right. to end sexual violence? Right. Um, I think you definitely hinted at it. Um, rape culture is unfortunately the culture that we live in. Um, it's about objectifying women, um, hypersexualizing children, dismissing and blaming victims of sexual violence excusing a perpetrator's behavior when they're otherwise successful and powerful individuals, um, and creating a toxic environment where rape cannot be discussed and survivors actually have to isolate in order to heal before they return to society. Uh, Could you please repeat that last (laughs) part of your segment? Rape culture is about creating a toxic environment where survivors have to go somewhere else, isolate in order to heal before they can return to society. Mm. Gosh, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, isolation mm-hmm. is, is such a crucial piece for rape culture to be perpetuated. Mm-hmm. Silence is crucial for rape culture to be perpetuated. Um, so thank you for saying that. I would also like to add that rape culture is one that teaches us don't get raped rather than don't rape, Mm -hmm. right? It places the responsibility on the victim slash the survivor rather than hold the perpetrator accountable. And this weaves back into our previous discussion around consent and the responsibility being on us rather than to rather than assuming, right? The responsibility is on Mm -hmm. us to seek consent before we engage with anyone sexually. I wanted us to play a game It's like a rapid fire type game meant to break myths and ignorance about this subject. Okay. 
So I'll go first. Sexual assault is an act of power, not of passion. In a scenario where a man is the perpetrator, it does not happen because a man's sexual drive is so inherently wild that he can't control himself. It happens because there are countless men out there who think they are entitled to female bodies. Patriarchy, colonialism, capitalism, they all teach us that some bodies aren't worthy of having autonomy, that it is okay for some bodies to have power over other bodies. Yes. Going with your rapid fireness, um, we need to stop blaming sexual assault on what folks wear. Yes. It doesn't matter what or how little a person wears. It doesn't make them more or less likely to be assaulted. Sexual assault occurs to folks um, who are fully clothed in their homes, at the doctor's office, at school, or in the therapist's office. The, the, the reality is that it shouldn't matter whether someone is butt naked in front of us. Mm-hmm. If they are not providing active verbal and physical confirmation of consent, the answer is no unless proven otherwise. Yes, yes. Hmm. So this next piece I want to say for folks who are survivors of childhood sexual assault um, and or Mm -hmm. for survivors who experience assault from uh, a significant other. It is possible for our bodies to respond in pleasurable ways during the actual assault itself. Absolutely. And I, for some of y'all, I know it's going to be really shocking to hear, but it's right. actually really important to say out loud because I've heard many survivors, especially um, male survivors, mm-hmm. who feel like it's their fault that they got assaulted because their penis was erect or because right. they had an orgasm or because, you know, they got wet. Like right. they, as if their body betrayed them and yeah. then somehow as if because their body reacted in a physiological way mm-hmm. that it somehow made the experience less violent right. when that's right. not true. Absolutely. Um, and I'll add just because you have been using drugs or alcohol, Mm. or both it does not mean it is your fault that you were assaulted it is always the perpetrator's fault period Mm. similarly if the person you are engaging with is too intoxicated to give active consent then you should back the fuck off (laughs) (laughs) simply put yes yes i want to pause and give a shout out to my uncle mark right now so my uncle mark is um head men's tennis coach at a small um a small college in michigan Mm -hmm. and he as part of his being a coach he teaches his his guys around consent as soon as they come in he engages with them on the topic of consent and so he told he has a saying and i i really hope i don't botch this he has a (laughs) saying if you think there's a chance that she wouldn't want to be with you at 9.30 in the morning, then <laughs> then you should assume that she doesn't want to be with you at 12.30 at night. <laughs> That's awesome. It's like something like that. I'm like, that is so true. If you think someone wouldn't hook up with you sober, right. Right. then don't fucking hook up with them uh, wasted. Seriously. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay, thank you. And so the next thing I'd say, and this is something that we already, I kind of, I guess, jumped the gun before, but Mm -hmm. um, around the topic of consent, right? The absence of no does not mean yes. There always needs to be a yes before engaging in any sexual behavior. Yes. 
And actually, I want to jump in if I can. Yes, please. Um, I've heard it too many times in my line of work, uh, people saying, I didn't say no. However, everything about this scenario, when they describe any part of it, it's it's pretty obvious to me that it was a clear no. Either they were too intoxicated, they were inching away, they were actually asking them to stop. So using mm-hmm. other words, right? right. Um, that essentially mean no. Um, they might have said that they were being hurt. So just to highlight that, and, and actually all of this, like this conversation <laughs> reminds me of a conversation I had um, as a kid. I was maybe like 10 years old and I vividly remember this Um so it was like 1987. Um, so at that time, I only knew how to talk in very hetero binary terms. So we were discussing if a boy should ask a girl before he kissed you. And sadly, at that time, we all thought that that might make it weird. And if you think about it in the movies and often, you know, in real life, the romantic notion is that you're swept off your feet and the strong man takes you into his arms and presses his lips into yours. And that's actually not cool. I've had that happen when I didn't want it to. And in opposition, like consent can actually be sexy. You know, you kind of, you, you, you talked about this with your thumbs up, right? That's super hot. (laughs) (laughs) And like asking someone to kiss you is hot and steamy and all that. And, and it can be foreplay to ask someone questions like, what do you like? Can I do this? Would you like, you know, X, Y, and Z? Um, and now fast forward, you know, it's not 1987 anymore. Thank goodness. Um, now as a mother, I have two young boys. I practice and I try to model consent all the time. I ask for kisses. And when they say no, I don't try to coerce them or force them or ask, act like they hurt my feelings and they owe me a kiss. I think those are really important. Ah, yes. And these, I feel like these are direct acts of of decolonization because thinking back about how and I just want to note again my mom transcribes these episodes so awesome. I always feel like I need to kind of sometimes give like mom I didn't get this from you but I got this from the rest of our family culture right right <laughs> which is that you know to be safe as yeah. a as a girl you should be not engaging with anyone or anything sexually right, right. Um, that that makes you bad that that makes it dangerous um, that your life and your worth will be ruined because who would want, I forgot that like disgusting was like story about like, if every time you engage with someone, if you're a flower and every time you engage with someone, a petal gets plucked off. Oh, and like by the time you meet your, your husband or whatever, oh, like, gosh, it's so stupid. But yeah, I <laughs> heard that one. Um, right. From that context, then as a young person, I was never encouraged or taught to even think about what I want. Right. And so then what ended up happening is I was a very sexual younger person and Mm -hmm. I was very yearning. I was in love with love is what I thought. And then what happened was then when I finally did have my first partner, it was entirely, and it was a male partner, it was entirely based, basically he he drove it all. Like he determined how far and what we did. Yeah. And it was because I was a I was just excited, and so I didn't know, I didn't know enough about myself to know how far I wanted to go. Right. And then 
B, which is I think what a lot of young people can can relate with, is that like you're so desperate for intimacy and companionship yeah. and you mm-hmm. want them to to want you and to like you. And so then it's almost not almost, it's like often easier to just suck it up and go with the flow. Right. Even though it hurts, even yeah. though you are already feeling guilty and even though it's very clear that you don't want to do it, it's like we mm-hmm. internalize that rather than risk being ostracized. You know, right, right, and that's in a situation. That's just on like a um, an emotional level, right? That's not even mm-hmm. taking into consideration what we shared before about how there are scenarios where we don't say shit because you are afraid of getting beaten, or you're afraid of being taken away from your family, right? Um, there's all these other scenarios, but but yeah, that that <laughs> you going back into the '80s kind of <laughs> brought that up for me, and um, and yeah, I really. I appreciate the way that you took us into the here and the now and how you are raising your your boys to embody consent. It's not going to be like a logical thing where they're going to have to stop and, and think about it. It's just going to be an automatic for them because that's how they were raised. I hope so. <laughs> and, you know, it's... You hear it often among parents, you know, when is when is it appropriate to have these talks with your children? And I think, you know, if we kind of consider their developmental stage and um, maturity level, like there's always ways to customize and kind of, you know, it's it's not going to be the birds and bees <laughs> conversation that, you know, we, you kind of hear about. But um, how do you customize? How do you kind of like build in? appropriate understanding around consent and respect um, early on. And we do that every day. Has this process for you been something that was self-led or are there friends or colleagues or authors you were able to bounce these ideas off before trying them out on your little guinea pigs? (laughs) I think, oh gosh, parenting is so much about caring for little guinea pigs poor thing (laughs) yeah so I um oh gosh I wish I could like name exactly you know who may have have informed me or taught me but I think along the way especially being in in the work that I do um it's always been a conversation right at least for the past 12 years it's been a conversation but gosh I mean like honestly it's probably like you (laughs) it's probably like (laughs) that you know that I've worked with and just had conversations with about oh yeah when we have kids you know what are we gonna do how are we gonna do this different like we're doing this work and we're you know constantly hearing like fucked up stories and how are we going to create change right right and how are we going to do that with the next generation and what you know whether you're a, a mother or just everyone has um you know, contact or interactions with young people or the next generation. You don't have to be a mother, right? Embody consent, embody respect. And that's how we change it. Yes. Um, so yeah, I wish I could name folks, but it's it's kind of everyone, I think. So I also just want to affirm that one thing that I've seen from you that I really respect as, as a colleague, as a friend, but also that I respect as a mother is mm. that you one of the things that I've seen as part of your practice is that you you sit with feelings of uncomfortability and contradiction, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I've never Aww. seen you be someone that when contradiction comes up, you just try to like gloss it over, you know? And like, <laughs> it's okay, it's okay. And so I think that's such a parental superpower 
because mm-hmm. I know that, yes, we had conversations for sure. We had conversations about our hypothetical future children. <laughs> right. And then, of course, knowing that like what works for you and your boys may be right. totally unhelpful for me and, and my future babies, you know? Right, right. Um, so therefore, like there is always going to be this level of like trial and error yeah. and there's going to be uncomfortability. And I think it's so important for folks out there who if they whether or not they have kids, if they're wanting to right. engage in this sort of like behavior, you know, the sort of teaching in their community, it's important to note that like this doesn't just happen when you're an expert or like it doesn't just happen only for people who work in rape crisis centers. You know, like right. this is this is an ongoing process for all of us in all mm-hmm. of our realms. And whether mm-hmm. whether it's actually, as you mentioned, right, like giving your kids agency, reinforcing your kids agency over their own bodies, right? right. Like mm-hmm. that's one example. Or another example would be, you know, if you're seeing behavior and when they come back from school, right, and they're trying to normalize something that's incredibly inappropriate and non-consensual, like instead of just letting them tell their story and move on, Mm-hmm. Try to stop and in a compassionate way that hopefully they can hear, right? Like explore. So not to be super cheesy. I just really appreciate it about you. So oh, thank you. To say that. To go back to our <laughs> this bigger concept of convers- this bigger conversation around yeah. sexual assault. There is a piece that I definitely want to make sure that we talk about, which is rape statistics. So right. it's common for us within organizations mm-hmm. to refer to statistics as, you know, truth, right? Mm-hmm. And it's important for folks out there to know that yeah. rape and sexual assault is grossly underreported. Right. And a lot of people struggle, especially folks that haven't been assaulted, they they mm-hmm. struggle understanding why folks a wouldn't go to the cops or B, why they wouldn't seek medical attention. Mm -hmm. Um, So could you touch upon what are some of the barriers for folks? I wanted to highlight that, you know, why don't people speak up? Why don't they go to the hospital? Why don't they go to the police? And also when we do disclose to our peers or to other professionals even, right, that we were assaulted, oftentimes one of the questions is, well, did you go to the police? Mm. Well, did you report this? Mm-hmm. Well, why didn't you seek medical attention? This all weighs on that feeling of I'm not being believed. Like they don't believe me because I didn't go to the cops. Right. Right. So I'm really I'm really glad that you asked that question. Um, it's really important to understand. It's really important for those of us doing this work, you know, moving into this type of work to understand why people don't report, why they don't go to the po- uh, police or the hospital even. So there's sh- shame. There's fear of violence. There's retaliation, mm-hmm. um, deportation, um, stigma in the community or within your own family mm-hmm. and all of that. Right. So just highlighting why people don't speak up or report. In my 12 years of doing this work, I would say of the survivors that I've met with and spoken with, uh, probably only about 10% either reported and or had a rape kit done. Mm. What happened to the folks that did file a police report typically and or um, got a rape kit done? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um Gosh, unfortunately, and, you know, I've worked in two different, you know, cities. Um, more often than not, it doesn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. 
it sits on a pile somewhere waiting for um, the DA to review. And it may never, we don't know if it's ever read or, or whatnot. We may never hear um, right. the next steps or it just gets filed, right? I think most folks out there don't realize that when we go to file a police report right. for in regards to sexual assaults, once we file that report, it is no longer ours. Right. Um, so the DA, right, district attorney, mm-hmm. reviews the evidence and determines whether or not it's something worth them pursuing. And so right. when I say evidence, I mean, they get your story, right? If there are witnesses, they try mm-hmm. to gather that those statements, um, DNA collection, photos, take photos of your body. Mm-hmm. And this is also when, when you were to get a rape kit, this is what they collect. They collect DNA evidence um, from orifices and under fingernails, and they right. maybe collect the clothes that you wore or, or et cetera. And then they take photos okay. of your body. So getting a rape kit is it's a very invasive process. Mm-hmm. Even if you were to get a rape kit done, and let's just say they were able to gather evidence, right? then maybe the DA would take it and pursue it. But then it's, of course, the next step would be, you know, he said, she said, sort of scenario, right? right? Or right. perpetrator versus, you know, the survivor. And so then that's yeah. why it's so sad mm-hmm. because the the victim, the survivor, they get on the stand, right? Then suddenly right. it's, well, what were you wearing that evening? Why were you out right. there? Why were right. you drinking? Right. To put someone behind bars, you would need right. DNA evidence. You would need to have photos, video footage. You'd have to have bruises. Like it's right. so over the top. As you're explaining, it's absolutely re-victimizing, right? Yes. Um, and ultimately, like when we're deciding as a survivor, if we're going to go to the police or if we're going to go to the hospital, keep in mind, if you or your community has been harmed by the police, you're not going to go to the police. Right. If you or your people have been brutalized, unjustly treated, threatened, raped, incarcerated, you're not going to go to the police. Right. Trying to lift it up a little bit, like recognize also that there are there are resources. There are, you know, marginalized people have always organized as mainstream systems are not accessible to them. Right. Right. So so often I remember early on in my training at SFWAR, it was so much about, you know, not pressuring someone to file a report, et cetera, et cetera, but to support them either way. Right. If you choose to file a report, know that there are supports in place. If you choose not to file a report, there are still supports in place. And also, you know, even if you are of the same community or whatnot, still asking them what their resources are, still finding out what what their support network looks like and how that can how that can serve them. On that note of what organizational support can look like, mm-hmm. local rape crisis centers are aware of the culture of local police departments as well as culture right. of local medical institutions. So for right. example, SF War provides free medical accompaniment to mm-hmm. um, SF General. And what that means is that a, an advocate goes and it's basically is there as like a third party. Like if you need a moment to gather yourself, if you want to stop, basically, if you just need a buffer between you and the medical staff, that's an example right. of what the advocate can do. In addition, right. the advocate can inform you of the options you have, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so other rape yeah. crisis centers do that. And the other thing I want to note, too, is in the Bay Area, we have a lot of different medical institutions, but right. as if war only works with SF General 
with this service because SF General is the only hospital in the Bay Area where someone can go to get a rape kit done without having to automatically file a police report. So especially in the case of knowing that most times perpetrators are folks that we know. So maybe in the moment, you don't know Mm -hmm. if you want to go and, you know, get public about accountability or you don't know if you want to go to the cops, Mm -hmm. but you know that you only have 72 hours to gather DNA evidence. And so therefore, this gives you an option. So your local rape crisis center can can tell you, again, of the options available to Mm -hmm. you. And and, you know, not all counties have a SART team, a sexual assault response team, mm. but San Francisco does, Sacramento does as well. And you can call your rape crisis center to find out kind of what that team looks like and how it's made up, how they can support you, what what the you know next steps kind of look like. I wanted to highlight that you know sometimes sometimes folks decide to go to their own doctor. Mm. Well, if you're um, you know, and that's fine if if what you're wanting is to you know kind of just get an overall checkup. However, if you are wanting evidence to be collected, you do have to go to this the local hospital that is associated with the local SART team, right? right. Um, and so that's San Francisco General. Um, in San Francisco and Sacramento, it's the Bear Clinic through Sutter. So knowing that, and 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 you know, of course, you don't you just know that you can call a hotline to find out what the next steps are if if that's what if that's the path you're choosing to take, right? Continuing then in this trajectory of conversation, so how can sexual assault impact our well-being shortly after it happens or even Mm -hmm. into the future? So um, when we experience any kind of trauma, our primal instincts kick in and take over. So our reaction might be to fight, to flee, to freeze or appease Mm -hmm. during the assault. And this is our animal instinct. Yet as human animals, we don't just shake this off and kind of move on with our life, unfortunately. Like we, um, afterwards, we might question why we responded the way that we did. And sometimes we wish we'd done something else. Mm -hmm. Like if only I'd run sooner or faster, or if only I'd fought back, if only I'd spoken up and said no, maybe it would have stopped, right? Um, There's a book called, there are a lot of books now, um, on the subject, but there's a book called The Body Keeps Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And um, the title alone pretty much sums it up. So trauma is stored in our body. And this can manifest as pain, as depression, as numbness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the first step in just understanding and knowing that that the body responds like that is helpful in knowing like that there are options available as you move through your healing process. Mm-hmm. Not only do I see a lot of survivors, myself included, Mm -hmm. um, spiral through the shame again and again and again of what happened in that moment, but then also folks spiral into shame on the aftermath of their coping, right? So for example, it's really common for some survivors to become hyposexual, right? Mm -hmm. Where they Mm -hmm. completely shut down um, right. sexually and they do not want to be touched. They don't find pleasure in anything. And especially right. if you are in a partnership, right, that can right. be very intense and a whole other dynamic yeah. to deal with. And then on the other end of that spectrum, it's also really common for folks to become hypersexual. And mm-hmm. the way that it was explained to me that made most sense, and actually this was my own experience after yeah. myself, is that it's almost like you want to 
you don't want that memory to be in there. So you try to get another sexual memory to replace it. You know? Oh my gosh. You know, sorry to interrupt you. (laughs) That literally was my experience. I lost my virginity at a young age. I don't consider my sexual assault at age nine to be when I lost my virginity because that was rape. Mm -hmm. But when I chose to lose my virginity, it literally was okay. At that point, I hadn't really talked to anyone. I hadn't told my family. I had like literally three friends who knew. And I told them once and we never talked about it again. So that's how little support Mm -hmm. I had. And when I decided to lose my virginity at age 15, I, um, it was, I wanted a new memory. I remember either saying that to one of my close friends or thinking it, but I just wanted something else. Right. That's the other thing too, right? To to affirm for folks that right. if you get assaulted and then you are able to have another sexual experience shortly after that does not minimize the impact or the severity, mm-hmm. right, of that sexual assault, mm-hmm. um, meaning it doesn't make it right, you know? And continuing that thread too, uh, I know for a lot of folks, common coping mechanisms are disassociation. So in the moment, right, going out of your body or hyperfixating on that crack in no. the wall or thinking right. about what you ate for lunch, right? And then what can yeah. happen is in that aftermath, you are so being in your body and being present to the moment is so mm-hmm. hard that mm-hmm. we become almost like um like in a trance kind of. So imagine like right. when you're driving and then suddenly right. you come to and you realize, oh my gosh, I just drove yeah. like 20 miles and I don't remember yeah. anything. That's an Been example, <laughs> right? Exactly. That's, yeah. That's an example of disassociation and it's right. really profound survival mechanisms by the right. body. And it mm-hmm. definitely serves a purpose in getting us through the moments. But what yeah. can be hard is when that coping mechanism gets in the way of us living our lives. Mm-hmm. Like, especially mm-hmm. if you have kiddos, disassociating yeah. may not be very safe, right? And so that brings to brings me to my next question for you, Tabitha, which yeah. is, as a survivor of sexual assault, how do I know when I need to seek help? Right. Um, it's different for everyone. Absolutely. Um, I just reflecting on my experience, survivors typically seek help when other areas of their life are being impacted, like you're describing. Um, They're unable to concentrate in school or at work. Um, They're dealing with insomnia or excessive sleeping, Mm -hmm. um, irritability, intimacy issues, anger, um, lashing out at friends and loved ones, all of the above, right? And and also, you know, healing, you, you spoke to this um, a little bit ago around the, the cycles of shame, right? And it made me think about, um, you know, healing is not a one and done. Huh. <laughs> Sorry. <Right? laughs> as much as I wish that were the case for myself, too, um, it's not a one and done. Like, oftentimes, and something I think that needs to be normalized more and more is understanding that, like, flare-ups, if you will, or, you know, depression or whatever it is um, that that kind of comes up for you will oftentimes come up or repeat at different times in your life, at right. di- different, you know, when times are s- stressful, or I notice it a lot with um, certain milestones, right? Mm. And so obviously, we'll talk about this more when we talk about childbirth, because that's a huge milestone, right? Right. So I just wanted to add that as well. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's that is huge. And I think 
folks don't often talk about that around right. like anniversaries of yes. the occasion or even like family gatherings. Yes. Or just being being irritated and upset that like, wait, but I did my year of counseling. Right. Exactly. <laughs> why the hell is this coming up again? You know? Yeah. And why is it coming up in this way? This is new and fucked up. <laughs> like, yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What do I do if there isn't anyone that I feel safe or comfortable telling? Yeah. So if in your immediate circle um, friends and family, if there isn't anyone that you feel comfortable speaking to, I do think that, um, you know, rape crisis centers are a great resource for that initial um, support. RAIN is a great resource. It's um, R, it's an acronym. I can't remember what it's for. R-A-I-N-N. It's the national hotline that will connect you to your local rape crisis center. Um, that's a great way to reach out. Yes, I think it's rape and incest national network. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So you did dive into this a little bit, but Mm -hmm. I want to ask the question again, which is what can healing look like? Yeah. So I'd mentioned it varies from person to person. Absolutely. Even if two people experience the same exact trauma, they're going to have unique responses to the experience, right? Because they have they have their own unique backgrounds, their own unique experiences outside of the trauma that they've experienced. They have their own unique coping mechanisms, all of that, right? right. Um, so I think it's important to also note that there isn't one way to heal. There's no like, oh, these 10 steps, you know, will get you through. That's not the case, unfortunately. Um healing may look like a number of talk therapy sessions, or it might look like going out dancing every night for a while or (laughs) years in my case, (laughs) or writing a book, you know, related or not related to your experience, Um, creating art, helping others, sharing in community. Um, Ultimately, I think being active in one way or another seems to be key whether it's just getting to your therapy appointment or to a friend's house or finding support in community or group setting. Um, And science now supports what so many survivors like naturally, you know, have done on their own to heal. There's research on like bilateral stimulation, be it EMDR or just walking, hence the movement and how that, that can be really helpful. Um, Art making. Um, Yeah. This, this, there's a, there's a connection um, with all this bilateral stimulation and actually um, moving trauma that's stored in our body and kind of processing it through the different areas of our brain. Pausing here to shift perspectives a bit, right? So we were talking about uh, what it can look like for the survivor themselves, mm-hmm. right? So let's switch to what can we do to best support a survivor who recently experienced an assault? We um, ultimately, we need to listen and we need to believe them. Mm. Um, I've heard you say, you know, basically check your shit at the door. Yep. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Stay grounded and watch our judgments and assumptions. Um, We all have biases. So be aware of that as you're listening and trying to support someone. Right. So all of that. And if you can, if you have capacity, ask if there's anything you can do to support them and be genuinely open to what they have to say. 
because we're not trying to fix them, right? Like, Right. genuinely be open because it might not, you, you know, whenever I ask an open-ended question, I'm oftentimes surprised by what the request is in return, right? It's it's usually not that thing that I just know will make this situation better. Right. <laughs> it's usually unique to that individual. So truly listen, um, be open-minded. Um, and then after that initial conversation, check in on them, whether that's, you know, whatever your relationship's like, if that's texting, if that's whatever it is. And sometimes just sitting with them being, you know, by their side without talking at them. Yes. Right. And, and being, being able to sit through the silence, Mm. if there's just, you know, crying, if there's, if there's anger being expressed, whatever the case may be, um, just to be present with them. Yes. Um, You know, you you said something that I think is so key, so crucial Mm -hmm. for those of us who are trying to support survivors, which is that it is often our human nature to want to fix it, right? Right, So that can look like, and on one end of the spectrum, it can look like trying to justify why it was a misunderstanding, Mm -hmm. right? Like, no, actually, I, I think you were wrong in that when that person said that you know, thing about an ass. He wasn't talking about your ass. He was talking about the lady next to us. Right. As if somehow that would like make that situation better, you know? Um, And that's kind of a a more, I guess, kind of quasi Mm -hmm. silly example I gave, you know, uh, just I've seen, especially when it comes to perpetrators being people that we know, you know, um, especially if it's inside our family, Mm -hmm. I see folks respond with trying to justify so that it never happened. Right. And truly like mm -hmm. not, you know, unintentionally, I will give that benefit of the doubt, (laughs) unintentionally minimizing the experience of the survivors. Exactly. And what that does, the intention of trying to fix it, then just teaches a survivor that I don't believe you and discourages them from telling anyone ever again. I was just going to add, you know, when I do um, intakes for counseling um, for clients, one of the questions I ask is if they were able to share their experience with anyone and what their that response was like. And honestly, I feel like half the time, if not more, the counseling that they're seeking is around the aftermath and how people responded to them. Yep, yeah. exactly. And so continuing that thread, right, about mm-hmm. how our our intention to fix it can actually just fuck things up even worse. Yeah. Um, yeah. I see, especially in relation to assaults, when responding to assaults that recently happened mm-hmm. versus something that was a long time ago, I've seen people respond with this urgency, right? Yeah, like yeah. this deep urgency, and then therefore they ask for more details. Right. And in their brain, they just it just comes out of their mouth, and then they right. end up asking shit that actually re-victimizes a survivor. Totally. Right? Being like, but why were you were you drunk? Why did you go into that room with them? And so again, it's like it makes it about you rather than the survivor, right? It draws the attention away. And so I just want to really underline for folk, you don't need clarifying questions. It actually doesn't really matter the the specifics of what happened when supporting someone, right? Like it doesn't really truly matter the specifics of what happened, but rather impact it had, Mm -hmm. right? So if the survivor wants to go and tell you the story, then sit and listen. But if, if the survivor only wants to talk about, I need some time off of work, but I don't know how to get it. Take that thread and run with it rather than Mm -hmm. be like, no, but first tell me what happened. Right, right. Or actually what you need, but did you do this yet? Yep. Right. Yeah. And 
you know, a crucial piece of SF4's philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. Which is being survivor centered, which mm -hmm. is what you were talking with Tabitha about how like when we ask them like, so how can I be of support? Their answer right. may be, can you just sleep on my couch tonight? Mm -hmm. You know, or mm -hmm. their answer may be, um, can you actually just make me a sandwich? Yeah. And that is incredibly important to listen, not not just be like, so I know you want me to sleep on my couch, but I have to work early tomorrow. Instead, can I drive you to the police station? <laughs> yes. And that brings up the point about like, be honest to them and to yourself about how you might be able or unable to support yes, them. Right. Exactly. Like, don't have this like empty, you know, offer of what do you need? What can I do? When really in actuality, you got a lot of your own shit going on and you need to do something else. You need to, you know. So, um, yeah. <laughs> right. Which is then goes back to, I think, what you were talking about, Tabitha, about supporting them and building their support. Yes. Their support yeah. network, their, again, maybe it is making sure that they have food in their belly or maybe right. it's connecting them, especially if we're survivors and their trauma is triggering the shit out of us in that Absolutely. moment. Yeah. Then you could be like, so is there anyone else that you would yeah. feel safe yeah. disclosing? Absolutely. Well, and, and just give myself an example. I've been, yes, I've been doing this work for a while. I'm not a savior. I'm not everyone's yes. end all be all. I'm not going to be able to help everyone. Right. Yep. And something about me or my presence or the way I speak or some whatever might actually be triggering for them. So I again, that's that leave your shit at the door. Um, you're not going to be everyone's everything. Right. <laughs> and, you know, you got to you got to be somewhat humble about that. That speaks to my next question, Tabitha, which is mm -hmm. what would you do if you were there trying to hold space for a survivor and they are livid and angry and mm. swearing or they say stuff that's fucked up and oppressive yeah. like right. how do you hold space while also dealing with all that yeah yeah so you have to take care of yourself um anytime that you're helping others right in any situation um and it's also important to know your boundaries mm -hmm. so in that moment um it's the same thing I say to peer counselors, right? Who are going to be on the hotline or working one-on-one -on -one in person with, with folks. Um, you do not need to take verbal abuse from anyone. And, you know, that might be a time to <laughs> excuse yourself from supporting them in that moment. Right. Um, or just leave and right. not let that escalate. You know, how do we de-escalate that situation? Right. Like, how do we just like, shut that down so that it doesn't continue. Right. right. Um, and that might be about naming it, or maybe it's, you know, it's beyond that in that moment and you just need to leave. So depending on your relationship with that person, you know, if whether your family, close friend or acquaintance, um, and also depending on the state of the survivor, because, you know, recognizing that if, if they're in an acute state, supporting them while triggered is going to look very different than if they're in a later, you know, kind of like more of a processing stage. Right. Um, if this is an acute state, then you, it's really important to support them as best as you can and find out what they what they need. And if you can't be that support person, then it's really important that you help connect them with someone who can support them. When you were um, saying this, I kept then seeing the words stay in your lane. Yeah, You know, yeah, like yeah. for some of us, our superpower is listening, right? Uh -huh. But other than that, we don't know who, you know, we don't know 
how it works in the hospitals or with the police right. station or, you know, and so it's important for us to not feel like we need to be the experts of the situation. Right. Um, and then also to know that if they are suicidal or mm-hmm. homicidal, mm-hmm. to take it seriously. And that doesn't mean you necessarily need to take action. But if you hear that, again, to take it seriously and to connect yourself to a resource um, to better figure out how to gauge, right? And so the National Suicide Prevention Mm -hmm. Hotline is a really amazing source because the the counselors there are trained for homicidal and suicidal situations. And so you can connect with someone like that to give yourself a better sense, right, of of Mm -hmm. what to do. And Mm -hmm. then also that can aid you in providing the survivor with appropriate resources. Yeah. And ultimately, like if you're starting to feel triggered or if it's just the heaviness of the situation Mm. is feeling like a bit much, like do what you can to stay grounded, grounded, Um, make sure that you're breathing (laughs) <laughs> which sounds so like obvious, but yeah, we no, need to breathe. True. <laughs> right? It yep. is. And slow down. Um, and then again, like if you're being triggered and, you know, say you've you've done what you need to do in the situation, whether it's connect them with someone else or or you kind of dealt with the immediate, you know, ness of whatever's needed, um, then go and talk to someone. Or go for a walk or like basically tap into your own resources. Yes. And when I say go talk to someone, of course, it's not go tell the story you just heard, right? Like right. <laughs> it's go to talk to someone about your own stuff that's coming up. Um, that's yes. really important. Yes. Mm-hmm. And vicarious trauma is real, Huge. especially mm-hmm. when we're supporting folks that are our loved ones. There's been, you know, ugh, there's been times when I'd be going to bed and I wasn't thinking about it, but then all of a sudden in the in-between state of waking and sleep, suddenly all those details of the story I heard come into my mind and my mind starts playing a movie. Or similarly, and this is one of the shitty parts about working Mm -hmm. in a crisis center, is I'd be in a sexual situation, a consensual Mm -hmm. sexual situation, and all of a sudden I'll start having flashes of the story that I heard earlier. And yeah. then yeah. that totally changes my sexual experience and I'm getting triggered right. and like it's just, it's a lot. So I also just want to affirm for folks that that is very real. It can happen. Yeah. And if you start to notice these intrusive thoughts being mm-hmm. a more regular occurrence, that is for sure a sign for you yourself yeah. to go and seek resources. And local rape crisis centers, for example, they provide services to survivors as well as significant others Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah to finish this episode yeah i wanted us to dive into um another rapid fire sort of thing i just really wanted to there's a long list of things to do and you know when supporting a survivor but there's also a long list of things not to do right when supporting a survivor so yeah down to just jump in Let's do that. Okay. I'll go ahead and start us off. Um, When supporting a survivor, do not make it about you and your feelings. Do not make them take care of you. So an example would be them disclosing and then you saying something like, oh my God, I would kill myself if that were to happen to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or them telling you something and then you being like, why didn't you tell me sooner? Like, don't you trust me? Right, right. Yeah. Yep. Um, and also, 
when supporting a survivor, do not guilt, shame, or manipulate them into doing what we think is right versus what mm. they feel is right. So pushing folks to go to the cops or file a report with their employer or confronting a family member, etc. Yes, thank you. Right. And we said this earlier, but I definitely want to repeat it here, uh, which is do not ask for details. They do not owe us their story. They don't owe us anything. Yeah. And do not try to justify the perpetrator's actions or attempt to explain why the assaultive action wasn't that bad or was misinterpreted. You don't have to understand what happened to be of support. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And along the same lines, I want to piggyback there. You don't have to agree with uh, that situation as being right. violent in order to be of support. So an example would be that um, had a client who was experiencing um, basically nighttime nightmares, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and she was someone who practiced a lot of like meditative and psychic cultivating practices. Mm-hmm. And so for her, that experience was a psychic attack, yeah. right? At yeah. the time, I didn't I wasn't meditating. I didn't know any of that shit. And I could not Mm -hmm. relate to what she was saying. But Mm. the bottom line is that it was not my business to determine whether or not it actually happened or how bad it was. And what I was able to do was actually just sit and be present for its impact on her, right? And that trauma was there. She Mm -hmm. for sure had PTSD. Like, So again, just to read it for folks that we don't have to understand it even if in your mind being like, well, that happened to me, I wouldn't have responded this way. It doesn't right. matter. It doesn't matter. I, I, what I love about um, that example that you give, you didn't also then require that they educate you in right. that moment. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> Not their responsibility. Nope. Nope. Yeah. And then the last thing I would probably add to this list, to support a survivor, don't try to fix it. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't be a vigilante. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a manifestation of us making it about ourselves. Unless a survivor explicitly asks for our support in taking action, do not take it upon yourself to hold the perpetrator accountable. Especially, especially if you are someone who is privileged, coming from a privileged perspective, and the person that you're supporting is someone who is a person of color when you're white or someone, um, maybe you have a higher socioeconomic status. Like there's a really good chance that there are aspects of their situation that you're not even aware of because that's not your own experience. And so you trying to save the day could actually put them even deeper in harm's way in ways that you could never imagine. So... On that heavy note, (laughs) Um, I think we should end this episode here um, because, folks, this was a lot. So I think it's important for listeners to, you know, take a moment to digest all that we shared. Um, And obviously, if folks have questions, please reach out um, via social media. Uh, My Birth Bruja page, for example, we're going to be continuing the conversation there as well as reaching out to us individually. Um, Mm -hmm. Folks will have our contact information on our, uh, rather, in the show notes. Is there anything you wanted to say in closing? Just thank you for having this conversation with me. 
and having me on your podcast. I, I, I think this was really important and I appreciate what you're doing, what you're doing, you know, as a doula, um, the intersection of uh, survivorship and giving birth <laughs> is, is heavy and it can be heavy. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, and it's not talked about enough. So I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you so much, Ari. The music you heard on today's show is entitled Healer by Sampa the Great. Deep gratitude to Tabitha Thomas for joining me in today's episode and to We Rise Cultural Productions for assistance in production. Go to birthbrucha.com to learn about upcoming trainings, mentorship circles, and more. Follow me on social media at birthbrucha to continue the conversation. I've been your host, Ari Guajardo-Johnson. The Birth Bruja podcast is produced by Catherine Petru of We Rise. Be sure to check out show notes for links and resources. Follow us on SoundCloud and iTunes to help us expand the impact of this work. Until next time, my friends, thank you for all the ways you show up in this world. Blessings and gratitude. Mm-hmm.